This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Yeah, we're back again. Still going, still waiting for the end of the Tory leadership contest or the end of the world as we know it, whichever comes first. Uh, coming up on today's episode, the big news we got on Saturday. Michael Gove backing Rishi Sunak, accusing Liz Truss of taking a holiday from reality. But, perhaps more significantly, Michael Gove confirming he's leaving frontline politics. Maybe he realised that frontline politics was leaving him. So what we thought we'd do on the podcast today, because it just triggered a wave of tributes to him right across the political spectrum so what i thought i'd do today is take a look at michael gove uh, the man is he a genius or is he just marginally better than everyone else so that's our big thing coming up today is it really the case that it must be gove 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 uh, before that uh, we kick off today with our columnist panel no liberace so instead we've got carol lewis and manvin rana the columnists on times radio Yes, every Monday morning at this time, we hear from Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester. Except we don't today, because Libby Purvis was on Times Radio Breakfast, so she's off having a lie down. And uh, I don't know where Rachel Sylvester is, or she must be having a holiday or something. So, joining me in the studio is Carol Lewis. Morning, Carol. Good morning. And uh, joining us live from Edinburgh is the host of the Stories of Our Times podcast, Manveen Rana. Morning, Manveen. Hello. Nice to have you with us. Uh, how is it in Edinburgh, Manveen? Because... Is there rubbish piled up outside wherever it is you're staying? Because apparently there's a lot of there's rubbish all over the streets because there's bin strikes. There is. It's insane. I've never seen Edinburgh quite like this, but there are just sort of bags of, of loose rubbish that are running down the streets. Um, it does have a slight air of things falling apart. And it's very great today too. So and there's there's sort of a, a fringe flu going around, which I've fallen victim to. So Edinburgh is a little bit grey today. You've got the fringe flu. Does that mean you're not I've being got able the fringe to... flu? Oh no! So you haven't been out and about. It's not COVID, is it? It's not COVID. I've done a test, but I've got a very, very red nose, and it's all a bit miserable. <laughs> is this because you've been staying out late, Manveen? I'd like to pretend I was. I was that cool. <laughs> Sadly, no. <laughs> I suppose, that the, uh, Carol, the bin bags piling up in the street, that's a proper visual representation of what feels like every, almost every aspect of life right now. There's strikes, there's industrial unrest, you know, the barristers have voted the day to go uh, out on strike on an indefinite basis from uh, September the 5th, and we've had the trains at the weekend, you know. 
all a bit rubbish. I know, all summer of discontent, yeah. yes. I'm confused by the barristers. I think partly because when we see barristers on TV, they're always sharp-suited and driving sports cars and living in penthouses, or they're old posh duffers living in Victorian mansions and hanging out in gentlemen's clubs. I'm also confused because I can't work out what they earn because the government say they earn an average of 80,000 a year with um, those in their third year on about 65,000. And the Bar Association is saying, no, no, the juniors earn more like 12,000 a year. The government has said we're giving a 15% pay rise from the end of September and that'll be the equivalent of 7,000 a year. And the Bar Association are saying, well, no, that's nearer £2,000 equivalent. So... I'm completely lost to, to really what, what they earn. But this could be any industrial dispute. <laughs> you know, if you look at any of them, uh, you know, whatever the the, 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 the organisation versus the government, the government says, oh, this is very good uh, within the bounds of, you know, uh, tightened uh, pay restraints. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, then whichever union it is says, oh, no, it's very bad. But you're right, the criminal bar association, they want a 25% rise in legal fees. Yes, after yeah. years of government cuts. So it feels, this, this is there's definitely an argument in lots of these union disputes, Manveen, that not just uh, inflation's very high right now, but with everyone concerned about these things, it's, it's to try and reset some of the losses in previous years, which just makes, you know, actually, so yeah. you know, makes it an even bigger call. It's not just we want 12% because that's inflation right now, we want 25% to make up for cuts over previous years. Well, I think that's what sort of people haven't noticed so much with the barristers. And it's all sort of blowing up now at the same time as inflation and the cost of living crisis is hitting all professions. But for these, for barristers, and I think, you know, I, th I think you've kind of got to divide the profession up. Obviously, there are those who are paid incredibly well um, in chambers and who sort of take on private clients. And I think this is particularly affecting people who take on legal aid cases because legal aid has been cut over the last decade by so much that they're saying that now junior barristers who are taking on legal aid cases are basically once you've taken out expenses earning less than national minimum wage i mean um you know in the times this morning it sort of talked about some junior barristers who've gone off to sort of join to become barristers but uh, to become baristas rather than barristers in in cafes because you earn more doing that which just seems completely mad um, and if we do want sort of a, a legal profession that's around to be able to represent people who can't afford to pay top whack for it, then we've we've got to be able to pay people decent wages. I mean, this this strike, if it goes ahead, will be catastrophic, you know, because of the pandemic. We already have a massive backlog of, of cases that need to go through the courts. If this goes through, I mean, everything will be at a standstill. A lot of trials will collapse. You know, there's a fear that sort of witnesses who've agreed to come forward now won't if, if you know things are delayed indefinitely, um, I mean this is genuinely catastrophic for the, for the justice system. You've got to hope that somebody in government um, decides to to do something about it quite urgently. And then yeah, the, the backlog then has implications, doesn't it? Because it potentially means you've got people who uh, shouldn't be on the streets, still on the streets, but it, you know because there's not enough room in prisons to put everyone in on remand, and you know it, it just becomes a self perpet. You know that leads to more potentially even more crime, Cal. Yes. Yes. The, the other thing that the government needs to do is um, invest in infrastructure, which is another thing that, you know, going back to your not giving pay rises for several years, they haven't invested in a lot of infrastructure. So there wasn't the technology, for instance, when we went into lockdown, loads of cases just ground to a halt because they couldn't log on to computers yeah. and, and do it, you know, working from home like, like we all did. So they do need to invest a lot yeah. in the whole system. Uh, not to depress you, but uh, there's some breaking news coming in from City, uh, the CITI, the uh, analysts. Uh, they're predicting UK inflation is on course to hit 18.6% in January. 
the oh, highest God. peak in almost half a century. Uh, that's just the uh, the Financial Times just reported. It's the investment bank predicting that the retail energy price cap will be raised to £4,567 in January, then 5816 in April. Uh, currently, it's 1971 So it's just going to get even worse, Mary. <laughs> well, and, and, I mean, that, that's that's the, the thing. I think that's why it's impossible for people who are going on strike now to back down, because it's just going to become impossible for people. You know, if these junior barristers, for example, are on less than national minimum wage, how do we expect them to live with inflation rising as quickly as it is? But it's all right, because Jacob Rees-Mogg says the solution is everyone needs to work harder. Uh, so this was uh, Liz Truss had made these comments before, saying that, uh, uh, that we needed more graft, which had come out uh, a few years ago, I think back in 2017. Uh, and then Jacob Rees-Mogg popped up in the mail on Sunday yesterday saying her comments reflected poor productivity in the British economy. Uh, he said that they attracted confected political criticism, but they reflect an unfortunate reality in much of the British state. I think Jacob Rees-Mogg wants to go back to the 1800s when we were in the midst of the Industrial Revolution and Britain had the highest productivity rate. Um, <laughs> that is so Jacob Rees-Mogg. Um, I don't know that we are actually, the, you know, so slack and we don't have such great productivity. We actually come, you know, fairly well down on the holiday scale. And yes, we have more holidays than America do officially, but you know, we have a lot less than other people. We work a lot more hours than other people. But to go back to, to what we were just saying about the barristers, um, it's about equipment as well, and it's yeah. about infrastructure. So when, so when we're being compared to the Chinese, when I think for Chinese factory, I think of, you know, loads of computers, the latest technology, yeah. AI, you know, the whole works. We, we don't have that. We've underinvested yeah. for so long. So, you know, I put it back on Jacob Rees-Mogg and say, OK, then. <laughs> well, this is a slightly recurring theme, isn't it, Mavi? Um, but when you listen to, you know, again, we've had throughout the entire Tory leadership contest, both Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak, you think the the, the picture they paint of the country they want to lead is absolutely <laughs> dreadful. If only they knew who it was who'd been in government it, for all this time. It has turned into a remarkable exercise in how to lose friends and alienate people. Um, but this this latest this latest from from Jacob Rees Mogg is just bizarre. I think. I mean, he's. He does seem to want to confect this image of being a character out of sort of Dickens. It's all very Mr. Gradgrind, you know. This is um, it just feels like a very old-fashioned solution to a very modern problem. You know, comparing us to the Chinese feels like you want us to go back to a, a you know, a world where people work on sort of conveyor belts and just just produce mindlessly. Whereas actually, I think the much more interesting thing to look at with productivity, which is a problem in this country, is that there are higher rates of productivity in America and in France. France, which has double the paid paternity leave that we do, France, which has the bigger annual leave allowance than we do, and yet is more productive. Um, you know, we've, we've got to think sort of, I think, more imaginatively about how we make our workforce more productive. And it's not necessarily old solutions. It's not about making people work longer hours. It might be about sort of flexible working and finding ways that people can be more productive when they're at work. Uh, and it feels like nobody in government is talking about that. We're but still also, looking at very, very old solutions. And, and the whole thing off the back of the pandemic was, you know, the the people suddenly finding they could work more flexibly, fit things around. Actually, you could have probably said to people, well, if you you know, if you could do all your work in four days, maybe you could do it in four days. Jacob Rees Mogg's whole thing is, where are you? Why aren't you sitting at your desks? Yeah, he wants exactly. people at their desks nine to five, doesn't yeah. he? Yeah. And it's, then it becomes about presenteeism and not yeah, not productivity. productivity and what you're yeah. producing at that, the back of it. Um, yeah. I want to ask you about heat pumps, Carol. Yes. Uh, because uh, there's a story in the Times today, uh, the Tory, the, 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 well, the right-leaning think tank onwards says home buyers should be given a 50% discount on stamp duty 
if they agreed to install heat pumps. And then Keir Starmer's out about this morning, talking about insulation to lag your loft. Uh, this is what, in fact, Keir Starmer's just been speaking the last few minutes in a housing estate in London. Well, unless action is taken, energy bills are going to go through the roof this winter, which is why we, the Labour Party, have said we should freeze energy prices, not let those bills go up, and pay for that in part with the windfall tax on oil and gas companies are making huge, huge profits. Alongside that, we need a national mission to insulate homes. That's a longer-term issue. I called for that a year ago now. If the government had done that, we'd have the best part of two million homes insulated. This morning, I've been seeing next-generation homes with insulation built into them. So we need to freeze prices for this winter, but we need a longer-term answer. That's insulating homes, a national mission. Instead of a national mission, we've got a zombie government, and that's the root of the problem. I feel like we're going to hear all of those keywords: national mission, <laughs> zombie government, tick, yeah. tick, ding, ding. Yeah. Um, Carol, uh, you you probably even more than me. I feel like the entire time I've been covering politics, politicians have been promising to lag my promising to lag my loft <laughs> to varying degrees. If we'd done everything they'd said, we wouldn't be able to put anything in the loft. It would just be pure I insulation. I know they're obsessed with roofs. We've had mending roofs in sunshine and. Um, and now, yes, exactly. <laughs> Fix the news of the summer show. We do need to do something. Um, I mean, we've got a terrific problem at the moment with landlords coming out of um, letting houses, which is putting rents right up. And one of the reasons, one of the many reasons is they've been told that they've got to um, up the EPC scores from an average of sort of E to C. Which is your sort of your, your green certificate. Yes, yeah. your energy efficiency. So that is your things like your glazing, your insulation yeah. and so on. Before we get on to fancy heat pumps, you yeah, know, your yeah. basics. Uh, and, and the average cost of getting from E to C is about £10,000. And the landlords are saying, no way, I'd rather, you know, with all the other taxes, sell up. So we definitely need to do something about that. We need we need people who are living in rented accommodation to have insulation and double glazing, all those things, to keep their bills down. Yeah. Otherwise, we're going to see those in rental accommodation hit hardest. Yeah. Um, we already have a boiler upgrade scheme which gives you £5,000 off the cost of a heat pump. Now, heat pumps cost between 10000 15000 The latest... Um, idea is you know 50% of your stamp duty but that that only actually equates to about 2500 so in the scale of things n not yeah, so yeah. much one of the big problems we've got is we don't have enough people to fit heat pumps of course we don't have enough people qualified to fit heat pumps they're also not that easy to put in if you live in a flat or you live in a city you know fine if you got a nice big house in the country and you can stick it on the outside and you can have your boiler inside I mean, it's not it's not as straightforward as let's just whip out a load any, of heat pumps. Are there any goods? There seems to have been some debates. I remember even speaking to some people in government who were responsible for this, who were doubtful. Yeah, you can't just, just stick them on. You, you'll probably need all new radiators as well. And they keep a low constant heat rather than up and yeah. down. So, yes, it's not like you're going to come home from work and stick it on and have a toasty house. It has to sort of gradually come up. Mm. What do you think about that, Manfred? God, I don't know. I, I mean, we've sort of we've heard so much about them, and I've sort of been thinking they're sort of probably the solution to everything. Now, Carol, I'm not sure. That's really scary. It's like you can burn um, all those bin bags of rubbish in. Uh, in Edinburgh. I mean, there That'll is that. Yeah. I, I'm going to be fine, <laughs> but you do you do worry, and you know, I don't think anybody's really talking about the realities of how do you fit them in flats and and things like that. And I, I find all of that quite scary. You know, sort of like the productivity stuff we were talking about a second ago. You sort of you get these sort of great. Um, catchphrases out of government, but nobody really talks about the reality. You know, nobody talks about sort of the detail of how you make this work. Um, I mean, if you can't fit them very easily into flats, and that's quite a lot of 
you know, make big cities around the country, then that's sort of a policy that's mm. not going to work. Yeah, yeah. They're big um, noisy And boxes. I don't know what the solution is. Exactly. That's the other thing. They are quite noisy, aren't they? Mm. Yes. Yeah. Manvin Rana and Carol Lewis there. And of course, you can read Carol in the Times every week and you can listen to Manvin on the Stories of Our Times podcast. Just uh, search wherever you're listening to this podcast. Uh, Stories of Our Times, it's one story told in depth every day. Uh, right, coming up next is the Life and Times of Michael Gove. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. The tributes are as effusive and polite as their subject. News that Michael Gove was belatedly backing Rishi Sunak to become Tory leader while dismissing Liz Truss's plans as a holiday from reality came with the kicker that he was also leaving frontline politics behind. Or more accurately, maybe he could see that frontline politics was leaving him behind. The announcement sparked a wave of gushing praise. The best departmental minister of the decade, the standout conservative thinking reforming minister of his generation, a superb common speechmaker, even a beacon of competence, which says rather more about his colleagues than the man himself. And yet Michael Gove is also a man of contradictions. The adopted Scottish son of a fish processor who broke into the Notting Hill set. As a teenager, he joined in campaign for Michael Foote's Labour Party, yet was one of the architects of Cameron Conservatism, which got the Tories back into power. He's the young fogey who confessed to taking cocaine as a journalist and after his divorce went clubbing in Aberdeen night spots. The Surrey MP who had a picture of Lenin hung on his wall. The great deliverer held by colleagues who twice refused to make him their leader. A conservative or a revolutionary? This is a man who's had more reinventions than Madonna. Mercifully, so far without the coffee table book about sex. Yet Michael Gove's ability to think big thoughts and then crucially make them happen stood out in an increasingly lightweight political class. It meant that not one, not two, but three prime ministers knew if you wanted something done, it must be Gove, Gove, Gove. Graham Andrew Logan was born in Aberdeen on August 26, 1967. He spent four months in care before he was adopted by Ernest and Christine Gove and renamed Michael. He still remembers the words his mother used when she explained that she'd adopted him. You're different from other children because we chose you, she said. You didn't grow under my heart, you grew in it. Michael Gove would later explain the impact his upbringing had on his life. To be fair, I actually feel very... Uh, privileged of my background because, as you know, I was adopted and um, I was given the most um, uh, precious gift that any child can have, which mm. is the unconditional love of their parents. Later, he described seeing his father's fish processing business go to the wall 
as a result of the EU's common fishing policy as the root of his Euroscepticism. Young Michael went to a state primary school, then passed the entrance exam to get into the independent Robert Gordon's college. He went on to Oxford, as so many in our politics do these days, turning up in a green tweed suit and red tie, the ultimate young fogey. After graduating too inept as a fish filleter to join the family business, he had his eye on journalism. Owen Bennett wrote a biography of Gove called Man in a Hurry. He's got everywhere he's got in life through his ideas. And I'll just, just two quick contrasts I want to draw out. When Gove went for a job at the Conservative Research Department after university, he was told he wasn't sufficiently Tory enough. When Cameron goes, there's a phone call from, we think, from the palace, Buckingham Palace, saying, you're about to meet a great man, please hire him. And they do. When Boris Johnson wants to become a journalist, I think he starts at the Times and gets sacked for making up quotes and gets a job on the Telegraph because he happens to know someone there. Michael Gove goes back to Aberdeen to start on the Aberdeen Press and Journal and do his journalism training and learn his shorthand like all oh, good journalists. So he, he didn't have those kind of doors open to him. He didn't have those connections. Everywhere that he's got has been through his ideas. And I kind of really respect that, that he's managed to reach where he's reached um, just through hard work. From the Press and Journal, Michael Gove dabbled in television, including a Channel 4 show called A Stab in the Dark alongside Tracy McLeod and David Baddiel. Here he is on Prince Charles. It's easy to dismiss Charles's ramblings as sentimental environmentalism, but no one seems to have noticed he's apparently plagiarised his ideas from another 20th century environmentalist. So who was this green visionary? Mahatma Gandhi? Sting? Or Jonathan Porritt? No, it was Adolf Hitler. <laughs> Amazingly, comedy didn't work out, so he moved to the BBC before joining the Times, eventually becoming the news editor. Oliver White, now the paper's policy editor, was then a junior reporter. He was actually, and this may surprise people, extremely amiable. I don't ever remember him raising his voice, and he had this way, even if he was disagreeing with you, of saying, yes, 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 no, no, no. Uh, and then he would sort of hedge his bets. You know, he was actually in there, I think, to learn about the paper's broader coverage other than politics. Before that, he'd been comment editor. Then he'd been brought in into the newsroom to give him experience of, you know, the sort of day-to-day -day of, of journalism outside of politics, like, you know, crime and court trials. And I remember one particular occasion, which is a sort of journalistic old wives' tale, but I think this is true. There was a big trial happening and Gove asked the reporter covering it when the jury was coming back and there was a pause and the reporter had to explain to Gove that you never knew when juries were coming back because obviously juries did all their deliberations in private. But, you know, it was one of those things. He didn't have that kind of experience. But by now, politics was Michael Gove's real love. He helped to found the policy exchange think tank before becoming the Conservative MP for Surrey Heath in 2005, months before David Cameron became leader. In this modern, compassionate Conservative Party, everyone is invited. Thank you. Two years later, he became Shadow Education Secretary, shaping one of the flagship policies of the Cameron era and cementing his place in Team Dave when they entered power in 2010, as David Cameron once told me. Michael was part of my absolute sort of inner team. He, had, he and I had talked together and worked together over education reform, over also about how we handled Islamist extremism. I mean, he was a part of my question time team. We were very good friends, uh, our families friends. He was very, very close. Gove's sense of humour meant that he was invaluable in David Cameron's Prime Minister's Questions team. Came out, Michael Gove came out with the funniest lines. I mean, some of them completely uh, unusable. He, he wrote poems and raps. But, he was very good at linking something from popular culture with some... <laughs> 
uh, reference to what was going on in, in, in politics and used to have us all in stitches. But then, and, then, and then I used to throw them all out. His reforms of schools and exams are held by supporters as a return to high standards, but decried by critics as old-fashioned learning by rote, ill-suited to the 21st century. But egging him on in his war against the so-called education blob was his key advisor, one Dominic Cummings. Remember him? David Cameron certainly does. Yes, yeah, so what happened, Michael came to, well, when I invited Michael to be Education Secretary, I sort of said, look, the good news is I want to give you the job that you want to have, that I want you to have. But the bad news is I'm afraid Dominic Cummings is not coming with you. I, I'd, I'd sort of come to see, I thought, and I'm, maybe I was wrong, but when Michael was very much part of the inner team planning the elections, we just were subject to an endless series of leaks. Um, and I rather suspected the hand of one um, D. Cummings. So I just thought better to have Michael in the tent, but to leave Dominic um, outside it. And then some months later, Michael was having a lot of difficulties with his department. And, and, and uh, he said, look, I need to have some of my old team around me. And I relented, I think, mistakenly. And so Cummings came in. And yet by 2014, the very name Michael Gove was toxic. Anger among parents, teachers, almost everyone. And that he had to be moved to the Whips office before the general election in 2015. After that, he was appointed Justice Secretary and Lord Chancellor, with all the finery that comes with that. Quite the rise for the boy from Aberdeen. But then came the EU referendum, called by his old friend David Cameron. When political ideology and personal loyalty collided, there would be only one winner. He was so much part of my inner team, and so it was just very painful to see what happened next. You know, as I, I've said before, he, he said to me, I won't play any part in the campaign, I'll just make one speech and, and that'll be it. But maybe it was naive, but I did believe that, you know, and, and so when he came to sort of lead the campaign and then, you know, stood in front of the posters about 80 million Turks coming to live in Britain and all the rest of it, it was, it was very painful to see that happen. In truth, Michael Gove was central to the campaign. The speeches, interviews, debates, providing the brains to balance out Boris Johnson. I think the people in this country have had enough of experts with uh, organisations from acronyms saying... The people saying, of this country have had organisations with acronyms saying that they know what is best in getting... And yet on the night of the EU referendum, convinced they'd lost, Michael Gove went to bed and he was woken up to the news. The British people have spoken and the answer is, we're out. Gove's long-standing friendship with the Camerons lay in tatters. Then Gove torched a newer but no less important link with an ally. But I've realised in the last few days that Boris isn't capable of building that team and providing that unity. And so I came reluctantly but firmly to the conclusion that as someone who had argued from the beginning that we should leave the European Union and as someone who wanted to ensure that a bold, positive vision for our future was implemented, that I had to stand for the leadership of the Conservative Party. So then when Theresa May, with whom he'd often clashed across the Cabinet table, became Prime Minister, sending him back to the back benches and the comment pages of the Times for a year. But once she found herself in trouble after losing her majority, she brought him back as Environment Secretary, where he applied the zeal he once had for GCSE reform to the cause of banning plastic straws. Plastic straws are a scourge. In 2019, he again ran for leader and again lost, while revealing to the public his cocaine days in the process. I took it several occasions, um, uh, on social occasions, more than 20 years ago, when I was working as a journalist. And so it was that Boris Johnson was the third PM to turn to Michael Gove in his hour of need as Cabinet Coordinator and later Leveling Up Secretary, trying to make the slogan into reality. The great deliverer could also be a great distractor too. 
In Cabinet, he would stick his nose in where some of his colleagues thought it was not wanted. During meetings in Theresa May's days, he delighted in using lots of long economic words, as one minister told me, in an apparent audition to become Chancellor. Yet he never made it to one of the great offices of state. Times policy editor Oliver Wright again. I mean, it's always hard when you know someone reasonably well, but I think sort of casting that aside, I think his achievements have been substantive, and I think certainly more substantive than many politicians of his generation and many politicians of, of you know, various guises of conservative government since 2010. I mean, he went into the Department for Education in 2010 with sort of big ideas, particularly free schools, ripping up the exam system. And he'd had time to think about those ideas in opposition and was in a rush to get them all done at once. And I think even he would concede that he made quite a few mistakes in that role. He fell out with you know, pretty much everybody, you know, certainly you know, the teaching unions, but also head teachers, schools, many of the sort of, as they described them, the stakeholders. And I think he learned from that. And I think when he went into subsequent departments, he realised that actually if you were going to have reform sort of whacking people over the head was only so useful and actually winning hearts and minds was probably a more sensible strategy. But what I kind of admire about him is that if you think back to, you know, obviously when Theresa May came into power, she got rid of him entirely and cast him to the back benches and then rather reluctantly brought him back into government, but in the post of Environment Secretary, which at that point in time was not a particularly sort of high profile or glamorous job. And, you know, he might have thought it was slightly below him, given what he'd done before. But he went into that job and made some pretty significant changes and managed the really remarkable feat of not falling out with either the farmers or the environmental movement. And a lot of people in the environmental movement who are not natural conservatives think quite highly of him because you know, some of the things that he did in that department, some of the changes that he made were, were substantive. The same thing could be said about justice. And he was someone who, you know, was prepared to work with civil servants, with officials. And I thought that's the most telling thing was when he was made levelling up secretary. A whole series of people within the cabinet office where he was before decided to up sticks and go and work with him in the levelling up department. And I think that is a sign of a, a reasonably effective and good minister. And what about the parallels with Liz Truss? They worked together at education. She was a junior minister there, having campaigned on childcare uh, issues as a backbench MP. He followed her as Environment Secretary, although there's a bit of Angela Ledsam in between. Uh, she followed him as Justice Secretary. They clearly, their paths have crossed a lot that, 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 that he did not see sufficient common ground, get, having worked in some detail on precisely the same policy areas, the environment, schools, the criminal justice system. Maybe tells you something about the different wings of the party they come across or just the fact that he he didn't agree with her, didn't respect her? It's a good question. I mean, I think at the early part of her career, when she was in the Department for Education, Gove was a bit of a mentor to her. But I think that changed as she rose up the cabinet. And I think you know, particularly over Brexit, when she was International Trade Secretary, she felt that Gove was kind of interfering, as many other ministers did, kind of getting involved in her brief and that relationship really is not what it was quite a long time ago. And there was suspicion amongst the, the trust camp about Gove. And I think also they felt that he was more naturally aligned to Sumac than the way it off. Uh, there is definitely a trust issue with the politest man in Westminster. Whether you're 
David Cameron, who saw one of his oldest friends in politics go for the other side and back Brexit, whether you're, you're Boris Johnson, you had him stood by your side during that campaign, the EU referendum campaign, and then he knifes him in the back during the, the leadership contest. And there were, there were sort of countless others along the way. Is he a man you can trust, do you think? Um, I don't think you can necessarily trust anyone in politics, but I'm not sure I would. It's <laughs> a good point. It's a good point. I'm not. I'm not sure. I think that Gove is any any worse than. Obviously, there is the sort of what Cameron saw as the big betrayal over Brexit, and then what Johnson saw as the big betrayal over his leadership. But you know, when the history books are written, certainly on the Johnson question. Gove was right, wasn't he, that when he came into power, some of the faults that Gove ascribed back then turned out to be true. Continuing, I'll look back on the life in times of Michael Gove as he prepares for life on the backbenches. Michael Gove himself says his great hero in politics was the US President Theodore Roosevelt. He was fond of saying, if you want an easy life and popularity, steer clear of politics. At various times, he's had neither. David Laws, the Lib Dem schools minister under Michael Gove when he was education secretary, said he was a combination of Jeeves and Che Guevara. David Cameron says he divides the world into team players and wankers. And by the end, Gove wasn't on his list of team players. So here now to assess, is Michael Gove actually a genius or is he just a bit better than everyone else? Rachel Wolfe. She was an advisor to Michael Gove on education in opposition. She went on to write Boris Johnson's 2019 manifesto. And with her, Polly McKenzie, Head of Policy for the Liberal Democrats, when they were in coalition. Uh, Polly, let's start with you, first of all. You tweeted at the weekend saying that although you disagreed with Michael Gove on many things, you couldn't help admiring him. Uh, Put in some context, you think, what it is that has made Michael Gove's time, ability as a minister different to others? Yeah, I mean, I've... I've long had a soft spot for Michael Gove, which has made me a lot of enemies uh, (laughs) among friends and people on Twitter. And, you know, there are plenty of things that I disagree with him on. on His views about Muslims, his views about Brexit, lots of the detail of the school's policy. But I I admire his method, I admire his intellect. And I, I guess the question is whether it's just that so many ministers in the last just over a decade have been so dreadful that we have such a low expectation that the idea that a a minister might come in genuinely try to get their heads around the the systems and the complexity of what's happening in the areas they're responsible for take a few months listen to people from all sides of the political spectrum and then design a strategy be clear about priorities and get things done he does that he has done that in every single department and it's much much more rare than it ought to be Rachel is that is that the thing that actually he's not that remarkable we just admire him because so many of his colleagues don't know what they want to do and even if they did they don't know how to get it done I mean I don't know how you define remarkable except relatively right like he's remarkable because he has achieved far more than certainly I think any other minister over the last 12 years. And I think you could argue actually more than most politicians full stop. It's not like we have an amazingly long roll call over the last 50 years of people who've sort of transformed the department they were in. And he was able to repeat the trick at one level in that he obviously did a huge amount in education, but then when he went to justice and when he went to the environment and when he went to levelling up, he was able to form a clear view about what he wanted to do and how he was going to get there. I think the the great shame 
is that actually in all of those departments, he was removed before he really managed to achieve as much as he could have done, right? He kept getting shuffled around, partly because he fell out with people over Brexit, etc. And partly because whenever you had a massive problem, you needed to put Michael Gove into it. So he never managed to solve the previous problem. What is it, do you think, that in 20, 50 years, we'll be able to say that changed? Because it's one thing saying, well, he managed to get through the agreement on banning plastic straws. Or we went from using letters. Straws, Matt. We went from we went from using letters to numbers to grade GCSEs, and he took this off the syllabus, and he had a row about dad's army, whatever it is, and he was all very effective in doing, you know, on his own terms, getting it through. Are there things that where he has fundamentally changed Britain, or did he just come up with some things he wanted to do, which he did, which could be undone later? Do you think, Rachel? So, I mean, I think there are two things. The the glib one would obviously be Brexit. I think he was one of the people who decided early on he was really going to campaign for this, formed a lot of the intellectual backbone for it. I think he's he's one of the people responsible for it. But I do think that he was one of the people who transformed the education system. And I say one of the people for two reasons. He was obviously the person who drove through all the reforms from 2010. But one of the reasons that was successful is it carried on a reforming direction that had been true under new Labour. What about you, Polly? What do you think? Well, I mean, it, like Brexit, as Rachel says, is yeah. is a huge thing. And, you know, that's difficult for me because I think that Brexit was a catastrophic error. I think it was pursued even by those with the most benevolent of intentions who pursued it from a place of naivety. Like, that's the best I can do. Um, and it is going to be a generation of unpicking the economic and social damage that that has caused. And, and of course, that is a huge part of his legacy. But the problem is, if you cannot see the good in flawed people or people who make mistakes or even people who do disastrous things, you end up exacerbating this kind of chronic problem in our politics that everyone just screams at each other. Let's let's throw some names out. Who, sh- who we sh- should we compare Michael Gove to in recent political history? I mean, Tony Blair clearly, you know, drove to lots of reforms, both actual, you know, policies, but the country changed quite a lot. Margaret Thatcher, I mean, I'm possibly wrongly thinking Prime Minister. Is it sort of Roy Jenkins thing? Is that the is that the bar that he clears? I think if you wanted to compare him, I don't think Prime Minister works, it would probably be a sort of maybe a Ken Baker, maybe a Keith Joseph. Keith Joseph might be slightly stretching it, but I, that seems the best the best analogy I can think of. Someone who he's probably a better minister than Keith Joseph, even if he came up with fewer ideas. Someone who has consistently come up with an intellectual framework, a strategy, being able to deliver against that strategy in departments that actually most people don't like desperately want. It's not like everybody gets into politics because they're really desperate to go and be justice secretary, but he was able to use them to deliver things that mattered. Is it just that point you make, the fact that he has he's never held a big job? It, I think we part- exaggerate these big jobs. I don't like the big <laughs> jobs are partly a legacy. I think that he is able to achieve vastly more than most foreign secretaries can, personally. But yeah, no, he hasn't. He's never had one of the four. Although, I think though that... famously, Ken Ken Clark was caught on mic saying that you can't have Michael Gove as prime minister because he'd start three walls before lunchtime or something. <laughs> even, even I think David Cameron said something soon about why he, could, why he couldn't be foreign secretary was because, you know, his views on foreign policy were a bit out there. But maybe you're right. Maybe the impact he's had on several departments is better than always aiming to become Chancellor. So, I mean, I was thinking of Ken Baker as well, partly because of the education thing. And Roy Jenkins, clearly somebody who went in as Home Secretary and just got stuff done that has a lasting legacy. But I think what's really remarkable is the ability Rachel mentions to go into a department that some might think is like 
the bottom of the ladder, certainly like last in the order of succession when you're like walking into important rooms to see the queen or whatever, and just go, hey, this is interesting. Oh, actually what we need is a new generation of national parks and to completely reconstruct agricultural subsidies and ban plastic straws and, uh, you know, do stuff on carpet recycling to find policy interesting like I'm a policy wonk so is Rachel so maybe that's why we like it but you know he is obviously also so clever that he can post hoc rationalize all sorts of things including nonsense and some of his foreign policy views I think fit into that if you read his book Celsius 77 it's remarkable it you, you kind of go through paragraph you're like yeah 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 that's true that's true that's true and there's like and therefore we should bomb Iran and you're like what <laughs> what, what? I'm, I'm a bit confused here He's phenomenally persuasive and articulate. Uh, just finally then, do you think we've seen the last of him? Is this really the end of Michael Gove in politics or in public life? I'd be astonished if it was the end of him in public life. I don't see how he could resist. <laughs> uh, what about you, Polly? Well, you know, he could do a Michael Portillo and be a TV personality or, a, you know, a George Osborne and go edit some newspapers and run some venture capital funds. He'll do something important next, certainly. Polly McKenzie there, former Lib Dem head of policy in number 10, joined the coalition years. And Rachel Wolfe, a former advisor to Michael Gove, who helped to write Boris Johnson's 2019 manifesto. So that was the life and times of Michael Gove as he prepares to leave frontline politics. Well, back in 2019, as he ran for leader for the second time, Michael Gove described himself as the Chumbawamba candidate. He gets knocked down, but he gets back up again. A useful reminder that love him or hate him, and plenty do both, you might not have seen the back of Michael Gove yet. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.